0: Hello and welcome to the No Longer Be Children podcast. I'm your host Josiah Meyer and we're in pursuit of a mature and stable Christian worldview. And to that end we're going to continue and uh, complete a series on the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy and Exposition, which is a statement written originally in 1978 by uh, some of the major evangelical leaders at the time including J.I. Packer, uh, Francis Schaeffer, R.C. Sproul, John Wenham. Uh, Carl F.H. Henry, and Norman Geisler. Would have been good probably to introduce it that way, but uh, we're concluding it that way. Um, And uh, since this is getting on to nearly 50 years old, um, 40 40 years old anyways, um, there's a few things that... um, could be updated in it, and for the most part, it's it's a hugely helpful and very culturally appropriate document. Um, but uh, John Oakes has written an article that he has online on evidenceforchristianity.org, uh, and September 12, twenty fifteen, he has this article called "A Case to Rewrite the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy," and he presents a very compelling case to change just a few points. And on these points, I would really agree with him. And, uh, he goes into a lot more depth than I do, so I would just encourage you to go over there and have a look. Um, but he's, and, and he goes into, in depth with, um, not only the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy, but also the Chicago Statement on Biblical Hermeneutics. Now, hermeneutics is a fancy word that means, um, the art of reading a text. So how, how do we read a text? And, um, if you take a course on literature, and how do you read Shakespeare? How do you read um, a legal document? There, there's going to be you're going to take a course on hermeneutics to understand how you read a text, and there's different ways of reading different texts, depending on what you want to get out of it, uh, and and what profession you're in, or or um, whether you're reading a will, uh, whether you're reading a will for a legal sense, or whether you're reading a will, you know to get some sort of an ascetic meaning, or um, to to hear your, your parents' heart, or something like that. There's going to be different ways of reading a text. And when it applies to scripture, that is called the discipline of hermeneutics, and there's you can take courses in that, it's a very important part of the Christian faith. And so they have a doctrine, document on uh, hermeneutics, and then they have one on, inspiration, on the inerrancy of scripture. And uh, John Oakes uh, studies both of these and and wrote a very thoughtful piece on them. I'm just going to stick with what I got on inerrancy because we're already up to four podcasts and I do have other issues I want to talk about. Um, But he's going to talk mostly about two issues. One is um, they're too stuck on the grammatical historical method of reading scriptures, which is just one way. It's one hermeneutical method. So Article... 18, we affirm that the text of Scripture is to be interpreted by grammatical historical exegesis, taking account of its literary forms and devices, and that Scripture is to interpret Scripture. Well, we certainly agree that Scripture is to interpret Scripture, I think. Just about everybody agrees with that. Um, But this statement that the grammatical historical exegesis is the only way to read the Bible. Um, Again, thinking about the the study of hermeneutics, there's a lot of different methods for reading the Bible, uh, for reading any text. But when it comes to, to reading the Bible, there's different ways that we could read it. And uh, why would we limit ourselves to only one way of doing that? Well, the next, the, the, the Nile kind of illustrates why they would limit themselves just to the, histor- to the grammar- grammatical historical ex- uh, method. Um, well, before I go on, maybe I should explain the grammatical historical method. Is basically, you read the text, uh, you try to understand what it meant to the original authors in their original context, and then you try to think about how it would apply to your life. So it's kind of this basic, read, understand, apply. Read, understand, apply. Which is great, that is the mainstay of evangelical, biblical reading of the text. Um, But we deny the legitimacy of any treatment of the text, or quest for sources lying behind it, that leads to relativizing, dehistoricizing, or discounting its teaching, or rejecting its claim to authorship. So, in this statement, they're rejecting anything except the grammatical historical exegesis. Um, And then they add the reason why, uh, because it seems to be dehistoricizing or discounting its teaching, etc. So I have in front of me a book that I got in seminary called, uh, To Each Its Own Meaning, Biblical Criticisms and Their Application, or An Introduction to Biblical Criticism and Their Application by Stephen L. McKenzie and Stephen R. Haynes. And uh, this has 14 different ways, um, different methods for reading the Bible. And honestly, when I read this, a lot of them were like, Wah! Um, I mean, the, the a lot of these ways of reading the Bible are very much in the realm of, reading the Bible from the perspective of somebody that doesn't believe in in the Bible. Uh, They're, you know, kind of in the domain of of liberalism. But many of them are not. Uh, For example, uh, canonical criticism, reading the Bible as a canon, as a closed text, and then interpreting every part by every other part. Well, that's that's what Christians do all the time. That's just a different way of, of putting it. As well, narrative criticism. So you can read a book like Hawk Finn and and really focus on the narrative and there's a whole discipline of reading a text as a narrative and understanding all the comp- all the parts within the larger whole well, certainly we can apply that way of reading a text to the Bible couldn't we um, aren't many portions of the Bible a narrative Is't the whole Bible a grand narrative um, etc and even the ones that um, that are the normal domain in the normal domain of, of liberals, such as source criticism. Source criticism is trying to find the texts behind the text of scripture. Um when when source criticism first came in and there was a lot of talk about Q and before Mark, before the, the first gospels there was this other document called Q where Jesus wasn't God and then he became God in the Gospels and, and there's this evolution and change and stuff. Certainly at the beginning it was presented as kind of a weapon against Christianity, which is, I think, why there's this rejection of, these, of, of source criticism. I think source criticism, form criticism are kind of mainly in view here. But as evangelicals have had time to kind of sit and digest that for a second, they think, well, hold on a second. Certainly before uh, Moses wrote the Pentateuch, if Moses was the primary author of the Pentateuch, he would have had to have sources that came before him. Otherwise, he would have known nothing. He would have had to just sit there and write you know, off the top of his head. So he had sources that came before him. And then he wrote. So why would it be wrong to try and ask the question, what sources came before him, and Moses as a human author in the human aspect of him writing it, um, we, c- we can do more detailed study and, and try and find out how the Mesopotamian creation myths, uh, the Mesopotamian uh, flood stories, uh, the, the, the uh, Epic of Gilgamesh, and, and the other stories that are the uh, Law Code of Hammurabi, and, and other things that came before that Moses probably would have been familiar with, um, the Egyptian Book of the Dead may have been written before. I'm not sure of the dating of that. But he would have been familiar with other things written in his time, and then he wrote the Test—he wrote part of the Old Testament. And I think that gives us a more full and more clear picture because you can see not how Moses is writing to 20th century uh, scientific world, which he is, but he's writing first and foremost to his ancient world. And so he's writing within the literary genres and within the context of, of what was already written. Um, so when we see the text that came before, we can see how he changed uh, and, and how he worked with those texts. Just as a, a small example, um, there's uh, um, a number of creation myths that came before the Bible, before Genesis, uh, coming out of Mesopotamia, where um, coming out of Ur, were where, Ab- where uh, yeah Abraham would have left and, um, and and popular in Babylon which is a very ancient city going almost back to the the beginning of of uh, recorded history around I believe four thousand five hundred BC is when when recorded history began with the creation of writing and and um, you know, the, the belief was that uh, there was this great sea monster and he was basically the creator. And I, f- I forget exactly how it, it all worked out, but uh, I think the sea monster was ripped in half and then half became the land, half became the water. And in the Genesis account, uh, we have a sea monster mentioned, but it's so fascinating that um, he's a parenthesis. God creates the land, God creates the sea, and in the sea, he has the sea monster. That's to play. As well, the sun, moon, and stars were something that was, were worshipped by the Egyptians and also by the, the Canaanites in the land. And it's another parenthesis. It's mentioned, God also created the sun, moon, and stars to mark the seasons. And so when you see the other texts, it's not necess- it doesn't need to be an attack. You can turn anything into an attack. But when you see the other texts and how the early writers are interacting with them, you say, oh, so God is saying, yes, there's a sea monster, a, a, this huge, colossal animal, but he's just in the sea playing. He, He's not the creator, I'm the creator. I'm so powerful, I created the land and the sea. And the sea monster is just playing in them. And so, again, getting back to this, the grammatical historical method is the only one that we can use. Really? That's it's a little bit too restrictive. Um we deny the legitimacy of any treatment of the text or quest for sources lying behind the text. Really? You don't you don't want to look at any sources behind the text. Um you know, getting back to Shakespeare and I mentioned him a few times. I mean, Shakespeare was a genius and he wrote all these wonderful plays. But clearly he was reading plays before he wrote. Clearly he would have known other sources behind them. And then those influenced his eventual writing as a human author. Certainly even... um, Yeah, so as being human people, they would have had other sources that they were using. Historical sources, sources based in history, but sources that predated them or, or influenced them that they were responding to in one way or another. And I think that gives us a richer and a more full view of Scripture, not necessarily a weaker one. Um, historically, these these critical methods came in, as I mentioned, as really an attack against Christianity. And I think that evangelicalism has learned to embrace them. In fact, I'm, I studied at a fairly evangelical school that gave me this book. Um, and uh, I think that... Um, these other methods can really enhance our view of Scripture, even though um, some of them we can't really use or we need to use with with some caution. Article 12, we affirm that Scripture in its entire, entirety is inerrant, being free from all falsehood, fraud, or deceit. Well, that certainly, we agree, is true. We deny that biblical infallibility and inerrancy are liberty, limited to spiritual, religious, or redemptive themes. Exclusive of assertions in the fields of history and science, so um, an earlier Catholic decision was that uh, scriptures, and I believe that's still in a, in effect, that scriptures are inerrant on on matters of faith, but they don't touch science. So that's being rejected here. We further deny that scientific hypotheses about Earth history may propel may properly be used to overturn the teachings of Scripture on creation and the flood. So unfortunately, they have an explicit mention of six-day creation and the flood account in this document. And um, again, in this in this article twelve, it says that um, its reason for this is that scripture is inerrant, being free from all falsehood, fraud, or deceit. That's a very. That's um, a misunderstanding of an. Evolutionary creationist view. Evolutionary creationists or creation—I think you can put it the other way too—but evolutionary creationists don't believe that the Bible is deceitful. They just believe that, um, or there will be different ways of working it out. But they would believe that um, the first couple chapters of Genesis, the part that touches the prehistoric,al the the, the super early part, the, the creation, the flood account. This is written in the literary genre of a creation myth, and that not myth in the sense of it not being true, myth in the sense of um, restating the creation myths of the ancient Near East. So it's, it's like a genre. In the same way that poetry is a genre, creation myth is a genre, and this is the Judeo-Christian creation myth that speaks profoundly important theological truths that is based on fact, um, but is is speaking within this sort of a, a literary genre of creation myth. Certainly would not believe that it's a falsehood or a fraud or a deceit. Um, and there's tons of evangelicals nowadays that believe in some way, shape, or form in evolution. Um, Six-day creation is, is certainly a viable option and it has a lot of energy and a lot of financing behind it. Um, but there's a real shift within conservative and within good, solid evangelical movements to go towards some sort of a, six, uh, of a creationary, evolutionary model um, for a lot of reasons, not just for scientific um, pressure, but also from archaeology, from historiography and from other methods and from looking at scriptures themselves through new eyes. So without saying where I stand on either side of that, because I actually don't know yet, um, I am open to both sides, and I'm still researching it. But I think that if it was written today, that uh, the Chicago Statement wouldn't have been quite so so restrictive, either on the grammatical historical method or on um, creation in six days, because um, even the major writers within evangelicalism... um, like William Lane Craig is is probably the most important apologet apologist today, defender of the faith today, explicitly believes in evolution. Or Lee Strobel, another huge, hugely influential contemporary writer, C. S. Lewis, uh, an oldie but a goodie. Uh, there's tons of people that don't believe uh, in the literal six-day creation, but are are firmly within the evangelical camp. So um, there you go. There's some issues within the the statement that um, could be written a little bit differently, but um, all in all, extremely helpful, extremely illuminating document. And so in the next podcast, maybe we'll just have a few concluding statements on inerrancy. And uh, I hope that this journey has been helpful to you. Hey there, Josiah again. Um <clears throat> It's hard to edit uh, an audio document. I'm just going to add a few things at the end that um, could be edits or clarifications. So, I mentioned uh, there were documents before um, the New Testament, the Old Testament, and that I know for fundamentalists or for for Christians like us, um, that's like, whoa. Well, hold on a second. We have the story of Adam. We have the story of Eve. Isn't that the very beginning? Um, so Christians um, have have tended to believe that Moses wrote um, the Old Testament. So, yes, this covers Adam and Eve. This covers the creation. But it, the dating of the Old Testament was began at at Moses, and Moses um, lived somewhere. Hold on, I'm gonna have a look here. Uh, somewhere around 1391 to 1271. So sometime around the 13th century. Uh, BC before Christ. Um, so that's about the that's, the that's the conservative, most generous dating of the writing of the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible. Um, liberals will say that uh, the Old Testament was collected and, and largely written at the time of the Babylonian exile, which was in the fifth century BC from five uh, what was it 598 to 537 something like that 538. Um, so that's when liberals will say that the Old Testament was written. So there's about a thousand year difference between conservatives and liberals. Um, but, uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh, uh, there probably was a historical person named Gilgamesh that lived around 27 BC. Um, and, uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh, the oldest copy that we have, which is on clay tablets, it's the oldest, um oldest story, the oldest written story that we have, as far as I know, Uh, and that dates to 2000 BC. And so, even if we go with the most conservative dating of the Old Testament, the Epic of Gilgamesh was 700 years older than, um, around 700 years older than Moses. And this would have been something that Moses would have, I mean, if he was... um, if he was raised in Egypt as, as Christians believe he was, if he was educated with all the wisdom of, of the Egyptians as as you know, as conservatives believe he was, he would have had access to the Epic of Gilgamesh. And he also would have had access to the creation myths and um, other things like that, as I mentioned, which all would have been in circulation, all would have predated um, the Pentateuch. Okay, and I'm just... Uh, just did a quick Wikipedia search. I couldn't get a clear answer on when the Book of the Dead was written. It seems as though that was kind of a... Um, a fluid, organic process that ended sometime uh, after um, Moses, or sometime in the same time period. Um, book of the Dead is is a collection of spells and uh, wisdom literature from uh, the Egyptians. Uh, the Law Code of Hammurabi was written, uh, and that was a legal code, and so there, it's a significant um, book because it it compares; it's similar to. Uh, the Old Testament, to uh, the law in the Old Testament. And that was written... uh, seven. Well, the King Hammurabi lived from 1792 to 1750. So sometime in there he wrote a law code, and sometime in there that was written on a stele, which is a stone, an upright stone. And uh, we still have access to that. So there were definitely documents that came before Moses. And, um, I mean, why wouldn't we read the law code of Hammurabi? I mean... And once we read it, why wouldn't we ask, okay, well, Moses would have had this in hand. How did he interact with this? How did he, he bring these things into um, the Old Testament? How did he, he reject some of the things? How did he interact with them? As well, there's tons of, of ways that um, the, the Canaanite god Baal is is refuted in the Old Testament in the prophets and also that Yahweh is presented as the better Baal or the you know I mean Baal is like a storm god right and so whenever you see God riding on a cloud brandishing a thunderbolt what the author is basically saying is look God is is so much better than Baal he, and you know God can make your fields fertile and he doesn't and you don't have to sleep with a temple, temple prostitute to do it so again um I just don't really get why we wouldn't look at the sources behind the texts. Um, I certainly wouldn't want to use, as the Chicago Statement says, I wouldn't want to use text criticism to then say, well, the Bible is just a human book, it's just um, it's just fictional, it's just created, it's all just something that was invented around 500 BC uh, in Babylon. I would not at all want to go that direction. I just want to know more about um, the Bible. And it seems to me that um, using the texts uh, that were available at the time uh, will actually give us more information. It basically expands and reinforces the historical critical method because it helps us understand what would the original authors have understood um, when, you know, an ancient prophet talked about God being a better, you know, a riding on a cloud and and. sending thunder and lightning on his enemies, they would have been thinking of Baal, and they would have been thinking about God being Yahweh being a better God than Baal. What would we think of, what would the ancient peoples think about when uh, Moses came down from the mountain with all these laws and rules? Well, something that might have come to mind might have been the law code of Hammurabi. um, And the law code of Hammurabi was really, you know, was presented as this is, a demonstration of my wisdom, it's a demonstration of my power, and it's something that is going to protect the the weak, and and people are going to know that they'll have justice in the land. And so, you know, to understand how the law of was, Hammurabi um, was understood in the context might help us to understand a bit more about the Pentateuch. So, I hope that is helpful and not distracting in any way from what I've presented here, and um, I might find a better software for adding edits. Uh, But as it is, we'll just add this little edit at the end, and um, I hope you have a good day. Thanks, bye.